Good morning. Please turn with me to this morning's scripture reading, which is the very end of Genesis, chapter 50, verses 22 through 26. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Genesis was compiled and composed as a masterful history and a a magnificent work of genius uh, during ancient times after the Israelites had fled from Egypt in the late second millennium B.C. So a nation of slaves who had been oppressed for 400 years united around a common identity and a common ancestor. Abraham. 400 years before that, before they escaped Egypt, Joseph had foretold that God would rescue them and lead them out. So the first message of this series on Genesis, this family of the promise, last January was entitled, The History of a Family. Um, This last message is entitled, The Faith of a Family. We've looked at Abraham and Sarah, their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, and how God had promised to bless the entire world, all of humanity, through them, through this one family. But they were going to have to trust him with that. You know, these patriarchs, they're not remembered for their morality. Have you ever thought about that? Their behavior, in some ways, was atrocious. From time to time, they're not even remembered for their success or their status. At times they were very wealthy, but wherever they were, they were considered strangers. Wherever they were, they were known as migrants, as refugees. And quite often they were politely asked to leave. And sometimes not so politely. They're remembered for their faith. The patriarchs are remembered for their faith. Here's why. Only faith saves. Only faith gives life and reconciliation with your creator because only faith rests on God's promises. That's it. Morality doesn't rest on God's promises. Morality rests on your own reputation, your own goodness. But faith, the very nature of faith is to rest on what God says and receive it. And trust in it. And change your life according to it. The patriarchs are remembered, despite their behavior and their status, they're remembered for their faith. And just like Abraham, 4,000 years before us, and just like Joseph, you need, more than anything, to live a life of trust. Regardless of what you think you need, what you need more than anything, according to the Bible, is to live a life of trust. God's promised grace is the one constant 
that we may hold closest to us in this life. And what I want to discuss with you today is faith. We began with faith and Abraham. We're going to end with faith and Joseph. I want to talk about what faith looks for in this life and beyond it. And I want to talk about what faith looks like. It'd be good to know. What does faith actually look like living by faith? And finally, I want to talk to you about what faith looks to. What is faith hoping for? What is faith anticipating? So what faith looks for, what faith looks like, and finally, what faith looks to. Now, what faith looks for is God to fulfill his promises. Joseph, from the ages of 17 to 110, displayed the same faith that his fathers before him had. When we look at verses 24 and 25 of today's passage, uh, we read that Joseph said to his relatives, to the, to the other descendants of Jacob, I'm going to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph says again to them, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. That phrase, surely visit you, One scholar, one Old Testament scholar says that the Hebrew construction of that phrase is very similar to another phrase from Genesis chapter 15, where God had said to Abraham in a very similar way, not surely God will visit you, but in a similar fashion, God said to Abraham, know for certain. There's a similarity in the wording there. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And after they shall come out with great possessions. Now the similar language there between what God had said to Abraham many, many decades earlier. And what Joseph, his great grandson, now says uh, to his relatives on his deathbed. The similarity there. The similarity there makes a very strong suggestion that the promise was passed down verbally from generation to generations. Through four generations, that promise was passed down from father to son, from parent to child. After all, we read from Psalm 145 this morning, one generation shall commend your works to another. There it is. Joseph's faith actually is a testament to us, we who who have not seen God, who have not audibly heard God speaking to us. Not many of us have seen bushes burning. Not many of us have seen appearances of the Almighty. Audible representations, theophanies of the Almighty. Look, for some reason, by God's unsearchable wisdom, Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, And Isaac and Jacob, the people we've been reading about for the last several months, they needed visions. They needed appearances and audible words of the Almighty. But Joseph, as far as we can tell, only received God's word from his elders. Nothing directly. No grand appearances, no visions. He did have some dreams, of course. But we don't see God interacting with Joseph in the way uh, that God interacted with Jacob Or with Abraham. But you know, for Joseph, it was enough. It was simply enough for Joseph to live by faith based on the word of God that he received from his dad. 
and from his grandparents. You know that true belief doesn't need visions and miracles. Neither will unbelief be convinced by them. If you are struggling and wrestling with whether or not to believe in the credibility of the Bible and in, in, in the sustainability of Christianity and Jesus himself, I want to suggest to you that no miracle or vision or word from God will ever convince you. People saw Jesus. They saw his miracles. Were even convinced that he came out of an empty tomb and still didn't believe. What you, my friend, would need is to ask God for faith. It's a gift to believe what humanity in our natural state cannot accept, that God is trustworthy and good, and he knows what we need better than we know ourselves. Ask him for the gift of faith. But for Joseph to hear, to hear the word of God passed down through his elders was enough to live a life of faith. And Joseph's faith was proven to be real when on his deathbed, he asked to be buried later in Canaan. See, the land, the promised land to these patriarchs, it was a tangible sign of God's promise to them. So that even when they were separated from the land, because they were for a very long time, even when they were separated from the land, they'd get to the land and be like, yeah, now we're in the land that God promised. And then they had to leave again. There'd be some famine or some pestilence or some war. And they keep going back and forth, getting to the land, losing the land. And in the end, when Abraham died, the only thing he owned in the promised land that God said was his was a burial plot. Same thing later on, uh, Jacob did the same thing. And then he bequeathed to Joseph a a plot of land in Shechem, it was a burial site. The only two places in the promised land that this family owned by the time Joseph is embalmed in an Egyptian sarcophagus were two grave sites. That's it. So even when they were separated from the land, check this out, they still believed that it was theirs, which really reveals a critical point that we can't miss when we read the book of Genesis and talk about these patriarchs and their families, more important than the promised land was the promise and the God who had made that promise to them. They trusted God's word and were told in the Bible that that is equivalent with faith itself. To trust in what God says, to believe it completely, that is faith. And we are also told in Genesis and then later in the New Testament, we are told again and again that faith equals righteousness. God grants his righteousness to all who trust what he says. Abraham believed God. We read months ago in Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and God counted it to Abraham as righteous. Not his behavior, not his status, but his faith. And Genesis, this great history, concludes in verse 26 with the words... They embalmed Joseph, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And that's it of Joseph's great life. He was put in a coffin in Egypt. The preacher James Boyce wrote this, that Joseph was, think about it, Joseph was essentially the prime minister of Egypt. And we all know he did an amazing job. But as the prime minister, he could have had a magnificent burial in Egypt and, and perhaps one day have had his body discovered and put on display in a modern museum. The fruits of modern archaeology could have had all of that. Instead, 
He preferred burial and Canaan after 400 years. That was his choice. And there in Canaan, his grave was forgotten. He himself certainly was forgotten by the Egyptians. But Joseph is remembered in the word of God. And he is with God today in glory. And so the author, the author of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, it's known as the hall of faith where it talks about the patriarchs and their faith. It says by faith, Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So faith looks for God to fulfill his promises, even if you don't see their fulfillment in the moment or during your lifetime. And Joseph's last words really give us a picture of what his type of faith looks like. Talked about what faith looks for. Here's what faith looks like. Faith, saving faith, looks like a person finding their identity in what is constant. Faith looks like a person anticipating what is constant. Not what is temporary or fleeting. That's what the patriarchs and their families learned. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they learned to live by faith through family conflict, through a very dysfunctional household. Every single one of them had very dysfunctional households, mixed families, complicated scenarios. And they learned through all of that how to live by faith. But then we got to Joseph's life and we saw Joseph learning to live by faith through suffering and injustice. And now you see with Joseph how to live by faith when you're approaching your own death. Or how to live by faith when you suddenly become struck with the shortness of your life, with your limitations, with the fleeting nature of all you are building and designing and hold precious. The patriarchs learn how to cling to what was constant while holding everything else, everyone else, loosely. Four generations, right? Four generations of migrating from place to place, of conflict, of tragedy, of injustice, of dealing with the consequences of their own moral failures. Four generations of all of this. The inconsistency of their lives and the constant threats to their survival trained them. It was all training so that they would be able to focus on the one constant thing. God's promise to bless them. And so again, the author of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11 said about them, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So let's make this more vivid for what faith looks like. Um, uh, at least I'll give you a, a personal example from my own life. You'll have to apply it to your own lives. Uh, my brother uh, struggled in a surgical ICU unit for eight weeks uh, before he died. 
in 2007. Uh, my younger brother, he was almost 28 years old. And you know, we, you know what it's like. We all prayed. We all prayed unceasingly that God would heal him. People all over the country were praying for David. People he didn't even know uh, were praying for David. We prayed and prayed and prayed for God to heal him, but he died. You know, my aunt recently wrote a piece, and uh, in it, she said that God actually did answer our prayers to heal David. But he, he answered our prayers by permanently relieving him of his suffering, by calling him home to a better country. He answered our prayers, just not the way we wanted them to be answered. Our sincere prayers were spiritually nearsighted. Our prayers were nearsighted. We didn't see clearly. We were, clitting, we were clinging to what we were losing. David, in dying, saw more clearly than we could. See, David, in dying, saw afar off. He saw that distant country that we were not in that moment consumed with our own desires, our fleeting desires, could not see in our spiritual nearsightedness. But he could see. And, you know, you would sit with him in the hospital, and, and all he wanted to do was hear the Psalms. You'd, you'd want to talk about memories and joke around about things that you knew he thought were funny. He didn't really care anymore. He just wanted, he wanted to hear the Psalms read to him. He, um, he wanted to hear hymns sung to him. He actually just wanted people to pray for him. He almost lost his amazing sense of humor. And, and in a sense, you look at this person you've known all your life and you're like, who is this person becoming? It was unsettling for me, but it's because I could not see what he saw. I was not anticipating what he was anticipating. He just began to simplify things, you know, just focus on dying, focus on healing, focus on my true home. He was clinging to what was constant while we were trying to hold on to what we couldn't keep. C.S. Lewis explained it this way. He wrote, we ought to give thanks for all fortune if it is good because it is good. If it's bad because it works in us patience humility and get this and the contempt for this world and a hope for our heavenly country. You must anticipate God's covenant promises and hold more loosely to what is not constant in your life. That's what faith looks like. Ask yourself, what are you looking for? What are you clinging to right now? Look, if you're angry at God, I want you to understand something. He hasn't failed you on a single promise that he's made. Not a single one has he reneged on. Maybe, maybe he hasn't granted the misguided desires and scenarios that you've conjured up for yourself, the promises that you've made for yourself, the assumptions that you've made on God and other people for what your life should look like and what should have happened. But God hasn't rejected a single promise that he's made. 
He hasn't rejected a single promise. He hasn't fulfilled a single word that he has spoken. You have to distinguish between what God has said and what you think you have heard. Psalm 10 beautifully and succinctly summarizes what it's like to live a life opposed to God. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. It's a bit different. The life of faith says that God is faithful throughout all generations. But the person, the heart, the mind that is opposed to God says, I shall not be moved through all generations. I shall not have adversity. So, of course, of course, they become utterly undone when what? When they lose their home, when you lose your culture or your nation as you understand it, when you lose your investments or your accomplishments go unnoticed or your love goes unreciprocated, you become undone. Not expecting that you are going to meet adversity in this life. God's never promised you wouldn't. But the patriarchs knew that they were strangers and exiles. And actually, the Christian recognizes the fact that so are we. We're strangers and exiles, but loved and chosen. And that's what makes the difference. We're wandering. The Apostle Peter said we're wandering, but we're not lost. You're lost. You're lost when things don't go right for you and you blame it on God. Joseph's coffin, one scholar said, think about it. Joseph was embalmed the Egyptian way, which was great because he was going to be lying around for 400 years. He was embalmed the Egyptian way and placed in a coffin in Egypt. And just think about it. Now, if you read Exodus and Joshua, Moses took his bones up four centuries later. And almost five centuries later, Joshua buried those bones in the plot of land in Shechem that Jacob had given to Joseph in the first place. But, but for 400 years, throughout their four centuries of oppression and slavery, the Israelites looked at Joseph's coffin. And that coffin, one scholar said, was a reminder to them again and again that Egypt was not their permanent home. And I wonder, what is it going to take for us, right? What, does it, what, what will it take to remind us that we're not living in our permanent home? Well, God has given us a reminder. And you know what? It's a coffin of sorts. But it's empty. An empty tomb outside of Jerusalem. Another reminder that God keeps his promises. We've talked about what faith looks for, what faith looks like. Here's what faith looks to. Faith looks to Jesus who embodies the fulfillment of all of God's promises. You want proof that God doesn't renege on his promises? Look at Jesus. Maybe you don't know him well enough. Joseph's last words to the Israelites were, God will visit you. And God did read Exodus and Joshua. Then Jesus of Nazareth came and the gospel of thousands of years later and the gospel of John begins by saying the word, meaning Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
You see, the reason that the promise of God is the main theme of the book of Genesis is because the promise of God is a person. That's what Abraham discovered. That's, that, that was Abraham's life lesson in the end after he almost lost his son Isaac, the child of the promise. Abraham learned the promise is God. God says to you, you get me. When I promise to bless you, the blessing is me, myself. That's it. It's me. It's all you ever need. The promise is a person. Jesus embodies God's friendship and faithfulness and grace. If you'll trust him. And Jesus's last words in the Bible are surely I'm coming soon. Maybe not tomorrow for us. Hey, Joseph said, you're going to get out of here. It was four centuries. We're waiting a lot longer than four centuries for Jesus to come soon. But everything else in history and everything else in the life of the church has proven that God stays true to his promises. So let's keep waiting, anticipating that God will come true that God will make good on all that he has promised. Surely I am coming soon. And then once more, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 said, therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and he meant Abraham and Isaac and Sarah, all of them. Since we're surrounded by all these people, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. God's promised grace is the one constant that we should hold closest, that we can hold closest to faith really just clings to Jesus. We can get into all the details in your community groups. You should be. And as we talk to one another one-on-one and as we read, but the basic point that you can't forget is that faith clings to Jesus and holds loosely the non-constants of this life. Let's pray. Father, we wonder what it would look like if we became a community of faith a city within a city, a community in this county that would cling to your son, to his grace, to his promises. Cling to the evidence of that empty tomb. Cling to the words that he spoke out of his mouth. And anticipate his coming and anticipate just whispers of his coming to work out practically in our lives as we live and worship and suffer and serve and love, and create, and build, and study. Uh, Father, what would it look like for all of us to cling to Jesus? Would you grant us that prayer? Help us to hold less, less tenaciously and to hold more loosely the non-constants of this life. We praise you for Jesus, who even, even in his suffering and approaching his own death, clung to your every word. And Father, we praise you uh, that we are going to see him again, just as surely as the Israelites were rescued, as Joseph said they would be. We wait for Jesus to come and make us right again. In his name, amen.